Good afternoon, everybody Uneducated Economist here. So, thought I would talk a little bit about lumber. Some uh, interesting things have come up in the lumber industry, at least the things that I'm seeing from the retail side of the lumber industry. And um, a lot of you who have been following my channel, you know that recently I've talked about the um, decking that is not available. So, typically when I do pressure-treated orders, I will order a particular product a two by six deck wood. Um, pretty much it's a treated wood that doesn't have the little incisor, the little holes po poked into the board. So it's meant for actually deck boards, a little bit higher grade, appearance grade kind of thing. Now, I have been trying to get these things in for the last three weeks and they have been in short supply. I just haven't been able to get them. I've been able to get eights and tens, the eight foot and 10 foot, but not the other lengths, the 12, 16s, 20s. They just not been available. And so I found that to be quite interesting as far as that was the first indicator for me when we had a lumber shortage back in 2020, right? When the pandemic kicked in and the summer started uh, rolling in with the with the stimulus packages and people going out there and building decks and fences and the gazebos and doing all the outside work to make their places a little bit more enjoyable since they were going to be locked down this pressure treated product was one of the first items to actually come up in short supply at the lumber yard that I work at. Well, here we are experiencing something kind of similar, not necessarily in all the pressure treated because most of it seems to be available, but it's appearing there in that two by six decking. Now, something else I found interesting yesterday is that I had uh, called down to the buyer and I said, Hey man, I just sold the last of the two by eight twenties. We need another unit. He said, okay, no problem. I'll get one and I'll get calling on it. Well, it turns out that he was ordering a couple of other units as well. Now, typically you would try and order truckloads to get the best pricing, but occasionally, you know, somebody buys a unit out, you just need to replace that one unit. And so he was doing that. And there was a couple of like two by six, uh, 16s, I believe were unavailable. And I thought to myself, oh man, here we go again. Now, this is something that we had talked about just uh, about a month ago or so that we were talking about mill curtailments and how there was quite a few mills up in the British Columbia area who had made in the announcement that they were going to be curtailing development. Uh, I believe it was Canfor said that they were going to shut down a few mills until the end of the year. So they were definitely trying to tighten up the inventory and it certainly is starting to happen as the availability is starting to become unavailable. Now, it's only a matter of time that that will start to reflect within the futures price. And so right now we have futures trading at around 435 per thousand. <clears throat> that is the low. Like I cannot imagine it getting much lower than that. However, I did have somebody who does some chart analysis, give me an email, send me an email saying that <clears throat> he's not quite sure why, but the chart that he's drawing is showing lumber going all the way down to a hundred per thousand. Now that to me seems like incredibly low. Like I cannot imagine ever seeing lumber at a hundred per thousand. That would just like, I, I just can't fathom it, right? But I can see the lumber supply sh coming in short supply. And then I can see that inventory tightening up to the point that the prices start to elevate as at least somebody out there is going to be in demand for this lumber. I mean, it's never a time in history that all buildings stopped altogether. So building has slowed down dramatically. The people are nervous about the future. The investors out there who would typically be buying into, say, futures into the lumber market, 
may not be participating like they once were trying to figure out what it is that's going to happen. Um, you know, like I said, the builder sentiment is really down. So all this stuff is weighing on the lumber industry, but seeing that the inventory is tightening up the, sh you know, the shortages that are starting to show themselves, the prices having been down at this level for quite some time, all the mill curtailments taking place. I just assume that we're probably going to start seeing prices rise. It just seems to me like that's what's going to end up happening. How long that takes, how far it goes is anybody's guess. I'm imagining the range now, the new normal range, is going to be somewhere between five to eight hundred per thousand. Like five to six hundred would be like the middle ground. I think at four hundred and thirty per thousand, there's a lot of mills out there who are not eager to produce at four hundred and thirty-five per thousand. But once it gets up to five, five fifty, that'll that'll catch their interest definitely at eight hundred. At at eight hundred per thousand, they just start going into a lot of production to try and take advantage of that situation. And then they fill up the inventory levels and it starts to drop again. Again, this is something we've talked about many times, the oversupply, undersupply, oversupply. It happens throughout the rest of the economy. It's gonna happen within lumber. It's gonna take years to find the equilibrium, but that's what's kind of happening. And you can see more evidence of it right now taking place within the lumber industry. Like I said, the things that are happening within the lumber industry, I feel is gonna take place throughout the rest of the economy. So anyway, that's the lumber update for you. Um, I also want to give a thank you to Gerald for the email. He um, he asked me in an email. He says, I see that you don't read books. How did you get this in, in knowledge? How did you get the information about the economy? <clears throat> and how did you learn so much about it? And, um, you know, it's, a, it's quite an interesting story, you know, considering that I barely graduated high school. I mean, I did graduate high school. I got a high school diploma. But I am not much into sitting in classrooms, learning, doing stuff like that. That was never anything that I was very much interested in. However, during the great financial crisis, I lost my job and my house started to go into a foreclosure. Well, it didn't start to go into foreclosure. I started having trouble making my payments, but I held on for quite some time. But it was during that time, like losing my job, having trouble making my payments, seeing all the stuff that was going on in the great financial crisis, I was like, man, what is going on here? And it was a friend of mine who gave me the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. Now, it took me a long time, but I did read that book. I read, I read every page of that book, and that really sparked my interest into what the heck is going on, right? So I started like doing a lot of research, trying to follow the Fed, trying to figure out all the stuff that was going on in the economy, started listening to a lot of people. I have to credit Peter Schiff for a good chunk of the stuff that I was researching back in the day came from Peter Schiff. Um, you know, definitely a big one. Doug Casey was a, definitely a big guy, uh, one I was following. Um, Peak Prosperity. If you haven't seen Peak Prosperity in the... Uh, uh, Oh, what did he call it? The, uh, God, he had this series that I can't remember what it was. It was Peak Prosperity, and there was like a certain series that he did that was, uh, that was really good. Um, you know, and it's showing the peak everything, like peak oil, peak demand, peak all this stuff, and uh, very interesting stuff. I'll see if I can find a link to it. I'll leave it down in the description for you guys. But all these, all these individuals, I would just listen to them on a regular basis as much as I could, trying to take in as much information as I, as I could get from these guys from every direction. And then, like, anytime I would ever hear something that I didn't understand, like if, I don't know, somebody would say something about, like, I don't know, I mean, just for example, like the repo market or something like that, or the repo facility, 
I would read as much as I could about that particular thing until I understood what it what it was, right? And then sometimes it would take me days because I would be reading some information about this and there'd be other information within it that I would have to try and understand in order to understand what it was that the whole thing was about to begin with. So that's how I did it. Like I would literally every single day either be listening to somebody's video on what's going on with the economy or I was reading articles or I was reading a Federal Reserve speech. Um, it was the Federal Reserve speeches that I think that really did it for me because most of those things are so confusing. But if you take the time to read all the notes, read all the stuff that you don't understand, like that's going on inside of it, if you take the time to just try and figure out all the things that are going on inside of that speech until you really understand everything that they're talking about, that's all that stuff is really telling about what's going on as far as the economy goes. Um, you know, it was just a matter of picking it up a piece at a time, you know, just one little thing. Like, you know, if you wanted to know sometimes like something as simple as bonds, you know, you hear this thing, bonds work, you know, bond prices work inversely to yields and people don't understand that. Like, why would, why is that the, why is that the case? Well, spend the time trying to figure that out. Why they call it a coupon rate? I mean, why? What's 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 the word coupon? Why why is that relevant to a bond? Well, it's because they used to actually have little coupons that you could tear off and go and cash them in, and that was the interest payment that the bond would pay. That's why they call it the coupon payment, you know. And so once you kind of understand this stuff, then it starts making a lot more sense throughout the rest of the rest of the things that are happening there, and you can start really like understanding how debt is going to impact the economy, especially the expansion of debt and then the contraction, the contraction of debt, because it's the contraction of debt that really is painful. The expansion of it is like pouring vodka into the punch bowl. People love it, man. I mean, they're just like partying up saying this is the best stuff ever. But then once the punch is gone or even worse, you know, you got to pay for more punch or something like that. Then it starts getting really painful as people's hangovers start to kick in, right? And that's like the analogy that is best describing debt is that debt is very much like drugs in the sense that if you are addicted to debt, it's much like being addicted to drugs in which that you really can't live without them. And if you do go without them, it's going to be painful and frustrating and hard to deal with and everything that is difficult with life, you can just associate the two and it seems to be the same. So anyway that's how I kind of got into it. Um, again, I never really read any books on the matter. Um, I did read Cantillon's essay on economic theory. So if there was two like big writings that I have actually read on economics, it would be the creature from Jekyll Island from Edward Griffin. And then it would also be Cantillon's essay on economic theory. Both of those I think are just excellent reads. So, but you know, what do I know? I never really read much else. Um, but that's how I did it, you know, and it's, it's a hobby, you know, and that's really what you have to take it down to is that it's a hobby. It's a passion. It's exciting for me. Um, it's something I think about. So, you know, when other people are thinking about fishing or hunting or football or even fashion or politics or something like that, I'm thinking about economics. And I know a lot of people will argue the idea that politics and economics go hand in hand. I don't think they do. I mean, I really don't. I never learned more about economics until I completely gave up on politics. Once I did that, economics became a breeze. It was so much easier to understand. But, um, you know, you got to remember, and even on Cantillon's essay, I'll, I'll let you guys go, but even, on, even in Cantillon's essay, he said that the economy is really on its own. The politicians out there and what they do, they impact 
or have impact, but they necessarily don't guide where the economy goes. The economy is the reason why the politicians are behaving the way they are. Okay, so you kind of think about that for just a minute. If the economy didn't move in the direction it did, the politicians wouldn't have been able to put go into the power that they that they were given. It's the people's behaviors, it's their freedoms, it's their rights. All that stuff matters. Politicians themselves, they are pretty much the effect of what it is that we have done with the economy. It's something interesting to think about. Okay, I'm going to go back to work. Uneducated economist, you guys let me know.